What events transformed your life? In this week's episode of Mama Talk Talks a Different Take, Ryan Clark talks to me about what it's like to have a father on death row. Hi, Ryan, and welcome to Mama Talk Talks a Different Take. How are you? I'm good. How are you today? I'm doing great. It's wonderful to have you on the show, and I know we've got a lot to talk about. And your topic is fascinating. And I know it's one that we haven't covered on the show before. Mm-hmm. So I'm eager to get there. But before we get right in, please introduce yourself to the Mama Talk Talk audience. Of course. Um, my name is Ryan Clark. I am proudly a Los Angeles native. Um, I currently work for Microsoft. My two years will be in January. That time went by uh, super quick. I currently live in Washington state. However, I am very homesick. (laughs) Um, I think about going back to LA all the time, but I will say that, you know, definitely grateful for Washington. It's been um, pretty outstanding as far as my career goes. Um, So I am definitely grateful for that, but yeah, no, I'm happy to be here and thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. What part of California are you from? I think you said LA, but what, what part of LA? Um, so I grew up, I was born in the city of champions, Inglewood, California. Um, and then, (laughs) yes, 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 yes. I can give you my, (laughs) no, I love my home. Um, I spent the first five years of my life there. I was actually born in, um, Sentinel hospital, which is also in Inglewood. Mm -hmm. Um, but uh, I lived there for the first five years of my life. And then once my father uh, ended up in his situation, we moved to the South Bay area. We moved to Redondo Beach. I went to high school um, in Palos Verdes, California as mm-hmm. well. Um, so, yeah, mostly like what um, some may consider it like the beach cities um, or the South Bay area is what it's mostly called but yeah Yeah. that's where um in LA I I definitely grew up and just for the record I I go home frequently like really like let's see 2018 my first year here I went home five times last year I went home seven times um this year last year I will say for the record that my youngest nephew was born so auntie rye had to be there and participate and mm-hmm. be involved. Um, yeah, no, my nephew, he's, I mean, and he's so gorgeous and it's not just because he looks like me, you know? So, um, okay, let's, we're going to tell the truth here. So, and then this year, right. And then let's see, this year I've been home. This year I've been home three times and then I'll go um, I'll go one more time in December. And just also for the record, when I say I'm home, I'm always talking about LA. Like if I'm being honest, like I feel like Washington is like my living quarters, but Los Angeles will always be my home. Always. Yeah. I, I hear that because I get asked the question a lot, like where is home? And I have to think about it for a second because I was born and raised in Cameroon. So that will always be home. Yes. But most of my adult life was in the US and so that is home. Yes. And then I live in Singapore. So this is home. <laughs> yeah. It's like, like it's, it's hard to pick a place, right? You get, for me, I've gotten committed and married to, to these different places. And so home, 
home is not a straightforward answer for me as it is for you. But um, yes, I, I, I love I love that that Soka vibe in there. Um, so Ryan, we were talking about your father leaving, but it's not kind of the usual story about fathers who leave. What is the story of your father's departure from your life? If that's the appropriate way to even put it. Yeah, no, seriously. It's like, even at, you know, I'm 33 and I'm still trying to figure out like, is it a departure? Like, what is that exactly? But um, this October, November is 29 years since I've seen my father. Um, my father is currently a death row inmate. Um, and he was sentenced. Um, I had, well, he was initially arrested in 1991, um, but he wasn't sentenced until 1996. So, yeah, no, I have not, I do have memories of him, my siblings, my older sister has memories of him. I'm one of four. Um, my older sister has memories of him because she's five years older than me, but my brother, Mm -hmm. he was like three at the time. He really doesn't remember my father at all. And my other sibling passed away before I was born. Um, but, but yeah, no, I mean, I haven't, um, I have not seen my father, you know, since I was four, he's missed pretty much everything, high school, graduations, kindergarten, uh, middle school, um, just about, uh, everything. My father was charged in an Orange County court, um, at the time, like in LA, um, and, you know, it's, I, I don't have a lot of details. Yeah. Um, I do have some, um, I kind of have like my own takeaways about his situation and they've kind of like changed and evolved, um, over time. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, my father wasn't exactly charged with doing these crimes he was charged as the conspirator the mm. mastermind of a bunch of different crimes so okay so so i i want to focus on, on you mm-hmm. before we get to that i want to understand mm-hmm. just to kind of give us some context what what happened like what did he do what was he accused of what was he convicted of and i want to get into how for 29 years, like you said, he's missed everything, but he's around. That that's that's like a that's like a different kind of thing, right? So I want us to get into that. But first, just give me a sense as best as you can what it is that he was convicted for and what the initial separation was like, as much as you can remember as a little girl. Sure. Um, I don't like the fall of 1991. I don't recall much of that time. I knew something was off and I didn't know exactly what it was. And then Mm -hmm. it got different right before I turned five. So my birthday's in March. Um, And in February of that year uh, of 1992, we all of a sudden packed up everything. I remember all these people were in front of my house and I was like, wow what is going on here? Like all my family were packing up stuff and I'm like, okay. And all of a sudden we just left, we moved and we, we moved to Redondo beach. We, we lived on Ruland Avenue. 
And I was like, this is weird, but something like, I don't know what it was. I told, I've told my mom this before. Like it just, something clicked that told me, you know what, Ryan, it's time to get into game time mode. Your life is going to be different. It was literally like second nature. It just happened. And I have literally been operating at the level that I operate now since then. And that, that's oh, true. I was four turning five and something just clicked and told me I needed to step up. And it's been, I have operated like that ever. So I'm, yeah, it's not normal. I'm, I'm, I'm going to be honest. I'm exhausted, you know, yeah. cause I have to go out here and work twice as hard, you know, as someone normal, just to function with all of that I've had to deal with. Yeah. Um, now as it relates, I'll be, I'll, this is the first time I've ever said this, like in this space, cause even when my brother has been interviewed, um, he has not, um, gotten into specifics, but I'm more than happy to share. And just for the record, I don't know, like, to what extent is this the truth about my father's case? This is what my perception of his situation is. But my father was charged with double murder and a crude robbery. Um, I don't know the full details. I'll be honest. I read about it online before. Um, and that's how I found out about the details when I was 17. I, when I you read were 17? It, I read so, it on, so be- yeah, I, I did. Okay, let me just back up. So I didn't know where my father was for a long time. You know, my mom's from the South and, you know, sometimes like in the South, they kind of uh, operate on the pilot, on the politics of silence where you don't even air your dirty laundry to your kids. Yeah. So one day when I was like eight or nine, my maternal grandmother was staying with us. And one day my mom, I was remember I was playing with my toys. And one day my mom called me and my brother in and she told us, well, the reason why your father's been gone is because he's incarcerated. And I was like, what? Obviously tears meltdown, like what? Wow. You know, I mean, and I, and I get it, you know, from my mom's perspective, I understand like that's a heavy load, but I'm glad she told us then and didn't wait till I was like, you know, in high school or something. And by the time I found out things had already carded, things have already started to kind of iron itself out, like in terms of his case. So, um, my brother is a junior and I was Googling him. And when we were in high school, we were a year apart. Um, I was Googling him and instead of my brother's information showed up. My father's did. And I was like, what is this? (laughs) And I read, I mean, it was an earful. It talked about my, my father's entire case. And I was just like, I'm in the twilight zone. And of course I approached my mom, like, wow, what is this? Like, and she didn't even know about some of the stuff that was, that I was reading about online. Um, so it was definitely, uh, I would say at the time, like at 17, I was like, this is, this is a load. Um, and here's the other interesting thing on this website. Mm-hmm. Um, it included his address. So I made a mental note. I wrote down the address and I made a mental note to myself that I was going to write my father when I got to college. And so that way I could so keep it between address, us at the address? prison. Oh, okay. Okay. So I could write him. Mm-hmm. So, um, 
I literally turned 18. I did my freshman year. I did one year of college at George Washington University in DC. And I wrote him a letter in October, 2005. And he responded a month later, maybe a little bit less and sent me a 20 page letter where he just spilled his guts. It was a very emotional experience. Woo, it gives me the chills thinking about it. Cause I had not talked to like, he literally had not seen or talked to me since I was a toddler. And at the time in 2005, I was 18 when I, um, when I wrote him. Yeah. And yeah. And then here's the kicker is that he told my grandma, his mother, and I had a conversation with him that November 2005. And that was the first time we had ever spoken at the time. I'll be honest. I did not tell my mom because I wanted us to stay between us, like me and yeah. him. So I could, and then what my plan was when I went back home to LA for winter break, I was going to tell her then. Yeah. Um, and I did do that, but she already knew because my grandma told her. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, but it was, it was an emotional, it was a, a very emotional call. I just, and when he called me, I had no idea. It was kind of a, I just got this call with my grandma and him on the phone and my grandma's like, your daddy's on the phone. And I was like, huh? I wasn't like prepared for that at all, but it was definitely nice yeah. to kind of hear his voice and stuff. So you share a lot. So <laughs> I, I'm just going to start unpacking it because I find sure. it really, really fascinating. Yes. First things first, as a little girl without your father, before you discovered what happened to him, where did you think your father was? Truthfully, in Georgia. Why like, did you I, think that? Um, I feel like that's what my mom told us at the time, like that he went on like a vacation or something five, like that. five years or something. What, what? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That he was that he was in Georgia because that's I'm like, oh, okay, well that's. And I just accepted it. I was like, okay. Yeah. I mean, it bothered me, but I just like, I I accepted it. And I'm sure like, you know, she kind of probably told us at the right time because by the time yeah. I found out he had been sentenced. And did you ever wonder while he was vacationing in Georgia, why is daddy not calling me? Why isn't he visiting? Why isn't he, did that cross your mind? Or was it just a different reality? Like, well, he's not here. He's not here. I think honestly, at that age, I had just kind of accepted it. I thought it was weird. I, I would, if I'm being honest, like, I don't think it really started to bother me until I got to high school. I didn't start asking myself those questions until I got older. And I was like, okay, this, cause, and you know what the other thing is too, especially just growing up in LA um, with all, like a, a, a I would say like a large part of my friends, so many of us with, went without fathers, it was normal. And we all had each mm-hmm. other in kind of a way. So it wasn't like you were missing out alone, you know? Yeah. So, so, so your version of reality was pretty fatherless. So you, you didn't feel like an anomaly, you felt like the norm. Pretty much. I think the only thing that separated my situation versus someone else's is obviously my father being incarcerated. But what was interesting is once as me and my brother got older Mm -hmm. um, and we started just having more in-depth conversations with friends, talking more about our personal lives, we realized some of those people who didn't have fathers also had incarcerated fathers. And we were like, no way. Like then it became like, I was like, oh, so we're really not alone in this. 
Yeah. No, I mean, it's, I mean, I'll be honest. Like I've dated two guys whose fathers had been incarcerated as long as mine have been. I mean, this is like a, a thing. Yeah. It, it sounds like it. And you know, what's so interesting about talking to you, Ryan, is because I think for those of us who've never had the experience, all your dad shows up as is a statistic. Legit. Yes. Right. So for a lot of people, it's like, and, and, and I tell you in the context in which I'm saying this, post George Floyd's killing, I was in a very heated conversation with a friend of mine, and we were talking about incarceration rates of Black men. And we went back five or six years looking at the data, I think it was from the Washington Post, at the rates of incarceration and, you know, sentencing, as well as just police killings of Black men versus different groups. But that was very much an intellectual conversation, right? Mm -hmm. So you are the reality behind the intellectual conversation because this is not, he's not a statistic, he's your father. And so in that sense, it's making me kind of pause and think about how we actually engage these topics every day. And the first time I, I really had to think about that was, I think I was 18 or 19 in college. And for what, whatever reason, I decided I was going to go um, do, a, do an internship at the Minneapolis Juvenile Detention Center. So I, I just, I was, I was curious about the judicial system. I had worked with the judge at the time, Judge Pamela Alexander, who was really all about trying to ensure that sentencing guidelines were not racially biased. So I went out there and every Saturday I would go and sit with these young boys. When I say young, I'm talking 9, 10, 11 to 14, 15, right? Yeah. And I got a glimpse of what life was like for them, how mm. they got into that situation and how bleak they thought their futures were. But I think we engage that and then we forget and we go about our lives and then we yeah. read stuff in the paper. We see what yeah. happened to George Floyd and all yes. these numbers. So for you... How do you engage this? Because it's not an intellectual exercise for you. When we're talking about incarceration of Black men, whatever the reason, it's not intellectual for you. It's not philosophical. It's not a number. It's your father. How do you carry that? That's a really good question. Um, you know, we can go back. Um, this is 2020. Nine years ago was the first time um, my brother spoke about my father publicly. Um, he was interviewed for Sports Illustrated. Um, at the time, his, he went to Duquesne University and they were doing um, really well. So they decided to interview him as one of the team captains. And, you know, we had, before the interview happened, my brother, my mom and I, we kind of had a conversation about it as a fan, like, okay, well, here, here's what it is. And on a side note, my brother let me know that the reporter wanted to interview me as well. And I was like, oh, okay. I was like, I'm going to be myself. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, you know, he asked me a similar question. And I had told him, I was like, you know what? Here's the reality. Like my brother, myself, and my sister were, like all of my siblings were statistics. You know, in addition to my father being one, I'm one too. Because I'm also expected to not amount to anything. I'm supposed to have a life of crime or I'm supposed to be in the ground. And for my brother, as a black man, I mean, those statistics, those statistics are even just it's tenfold, yeah. you know. 
where it's just like, you know, we're not, so that's why we do have to go out here and work 10 times as hard. But it's like, I think too, like, just as far as like, you know, I, I, I'm trying to operate with more compassion as mm-hmm. I've gotten older. And that's one thing that I have offered to my father. You know, I actually wrote a post um, and I'll share it with you. Um, I wrote a post on Instagram one Father's Day because I tell people all the time, like, and I said, like in the first line of this post, I was like, I haven't had a Father's Day with my father since 1991. I barely know what that holiday is even like. I mean, oh, even with my, that, yeah. I, I don't know. So it's like on a human level, like for me, I agree with you. This is not an intellectual conversation for me. Like we're talking about someone who miss, who's missing out on being a grandparent who has three grandsons that he has not met at all. And they're such beautiful boys and they're so smart and they're all funny. Um, you know, what, but what do you guys tell them? What do you, do you, do you tell them anything call. about grandpa? That's a good question. I actually, <laughs> it was so funny last year. Um, I went to Indiana where my sister lives and my oldest nephew, he'll be five on Christmas Day this year. Yeah. Um, we were talking about, I forgot how we got on the topic, but we were talking about like parenting and we were talking about our parents. And, you know, like I always ask my nephews like silly questions like, what's your mom's real name? What's your dad's real name? And then like all of a sudden it just turned on me. He goes, well, because I, I had said to him, I was like, OK, so me and mommy, we're sisters. She's my older sister. And he goes, oh, OK. And then he says where's your daddy? And I was like, Oh, I'm not, this is not, Oh no, I'm not ready for this. Oh no. And I'm I'm not not his parent either. My sister and my brother-in-law get to determine what that looks like for those kids. My brother, did you do one of those quick ask your mommy? (laughs) Exactly. I was like, ask mommy where, where he is. Um, you know, and and the same thing goes for my brother. They get to have those conversations. If they want me to partner with them, I'm more than happy, you know, to engage in those conversations in a super thoughtful way. And, you know, one day when I'm blessed enough, I mean, and I become a mom, like I definitely want to have those conversations, um, you know, with my, with my kids as well. But I mean, it's, it's definitely, I mean, to say that I've been on a journey as it relates to growing up without my father is an understatement. You know, because like, I mean, there's just so much that I have missed out on. Like, I mean, the reality of one is like, I won't have a father to walk me down the aisle. I was just going to ask you about that. You know, my sister didn't, you know, so mm. I mean, these are, these are things that we think about. And I mean, and, and I think the mo- one of the most important things, it's like, you know, we want people like my father, you know, cause let's, let's also be very clear that there are a number of black men who are incarcerated for crimes they did not commit at all yeah so as it relates to my father I'll be honest like I feel like there was some involvement I just don't think he was I personally don't think that he was I think he was overcharged for his involvement Um, Mm -hmm. but I definitely think to a certain extent like per my own beliefs and my own judgment I do feel like he was involved you know but it's just uh it's been you know it's it's been quite the journey. And I, I mean, I would just hope that people just, you know, see him as human, you know, kind of before they see him as an inmate, because let's also be also crystal clear. My father got the virus while incarcerated, you know, the prison that he's in, 
They were not screening those inmates. This is published information. They were not screening them. So you went from a, a prison that had 3,500 virus-free inmates to all of a sudden 1,500. And I got a call on July 1st talking about my father's experience. And to be honest with you, I don't even, I didn't even know how to feel. Cause it's like, on the one hand, I already have to kind of reconcile this, um, situation as it relates to like my father being on death row and possibly being executed one day, but then to now have to reconcile this whole idea of my father having the virus and potentially dying from that, from either because the virus actually does take him or the carelessness of the prison. Like it's just, I mean, this summer for me, post the murder of George Floyd has just been unreal. And, you know, that's one thing that I've always wondered about the wait, just waiting my, you know, so for for a long time, for about 10 years, I was an army wife and my ex-husband used to deploy to Afghanistan and Iraq and everywhere else in the army. And I remember his first deployment when we were together started as 12 months. And then Mm -hmm. because of the Bush surge, went to 15 months. And I really, during that time, came to understand what it means to wait. You're just waiting. You're just waiting. And that's all you can actually do. But in my case, at least, one of two things was going to happen, right? At the end of 15 months, I was going to get a body in the back. Or gonna get a human being, right? Full on. For you, waiting is different. Yeah. <laughs> so so are are you even waiting or what what is that like for you? What, what is that's another good question. Um I would say, well, especially in California, it's like one minute the death penalty is on the plate, the next minute it's not. So as it stands right now, it's not, you know, so my father for the next like seven years cannot be executed. I mean, per my own just intuition and judgment, I would say that he probably never will be if I had to really guess, like if I'm going to make a good, a good guess, I don't think he will be. And he'll probably just like, like die of old age, you know, in prison. And at that point, like my siblings and I, we've discussed like possible, because I have not, I've never visited. We've so we discussed like, you know, saying our goodbyes, like if it ever came to that point and making that trek up north to California in Northern California where he is like, okay, then that's something that we could definitely consider, you know, but I mean, the, the, the weight is heavy. I mean, I I will say this, like, um, I have not spoken to my father in about six years. Um, his mother got sick, um, in July-ish 2014. So my brother and I got in my car and drove to Vegas. I was still in LA at the time and we went to go kind of help her out um, because she got really, really sick. And while we were there, you know, they talk all the time. So he called and he was like, it's just so nice to hear your voice. And it was just, it was a weird conversation for me because I was unusually emotional. I'm like, usually I'm all right. But in this yeah. moment, I was just in tears. He didn't, I don't think he really picked up on it because I felt like I was handling myself well, but like he kept just saying, it was just weird hearing his voice that day for some, it was just, it just hit me for some reason. Yeah. And he had said to me on the phone, like, oh, I know all of you guys hate me. And I was like, what? No, that's not true. I said, we don't have time to hate you. 
We don't. I said that, like for me personally, that just takes up way too much emotional currency. I have too many things that I'm out here that I was, you know, the divine order wants me to do. And I want to go out here and set out and do those things. And if I spent my time hating you, I, I, I can't do it. I mean, I'll even, I'll go back like 2009. I'll here's, here's the truth. I was visiting my mom in Washington. Um, so in 2000, I was 22 and we were watching Medea goes to jail (laughs) and I was like, the movie was hilarious. And I like, I wasn't really paying attention. And then all of a sudden something just told me, Oh, Ryan, sit down and watch the movie. So I sat down and Medea was talking to one of the inmates yeah. And she told her that when you don't forgive someone, you give them power over your life. Over you. Yes. And that hit me. And my godmother at the time had been just on my case about forgiving my father. And I used to look at her like she had four heads and I would say, I'm not forgiving that man. I don't owe him nothing and this and this. Because, you know, when you're in your early 20s, you can't be told anything. Yeah. So yeah. I watched this movie and I'm like, Oh my God, when you don't forgive someone, you give them power over your life. I literally wrote my father a letter that day and I told him, I hold no ill will against you. I forgive you for it all. And I have felt lighter ever since, you know, so some of that weight came off. What were you holding against him? What was it that he took away from you that you were... Oh God, I I mean, I have a laundry list. Speak on it, speak on it. Um, Get it I, would, out. I would say one, definitely finances. I mean, there was times where my mom went without food so that we could eat. I mean, my mom is a machine. Ooh, I felt that. Um, Girl, you can't make me cry. You know, she just like, she's just not like, like normal. Usually like a lot of moms in her situation, I have some friends who will have fathers that are incarcerated and don't get me wrong. Like all parents in these situations are going on here and doing their best, but everyone on this planet knows that my mom is a machine. Like, you know, she's like, she did so much that just wasn't human. And I think the thing that's carried me the most, you know, outside of like my father's situation is that she has literally unconditionally loved me since March 30th, 1987. No matter what I've done, no matter what my accomplishments are, no no matter how much I think I suck, which I still struggle with every day, you know, that, that has just, that has carried me and made it such that me and my brother, because my sister and I have different moms, but her mom is a machine as well. But I mean, that that's the thing that has carried us. So and a, a lot of the times, like when my father wasn't there, it's like, OK, he wasn't there for us, you know, financially or just like emotional support, you know, or I mean, I mean, we can get real honest. I mean, and talk about how sometimes like my relationships with men and how not having that yeah. figure in my life translated for me and not the most positive ways when I was in my twenties, you know, I mean, it's, or even just navigating his family, you know, without him here, um, they're interesting, you know, I'll I'll say that, you know, some of them, um, you know, but I definitely, as I've gotten older, I've definitely built more of a bridge 
with his family. Um, and I would say like, we're much me and a lot of my first cousins, I have like 11 or so first cousins on my father's side, you know? Um, and we're, we're all much closer. A lot of us are the same age and we've had to, cause even, um, you know, like my father's brothers, one of them was incarcerated with him. My uncle Eric Mm -hmm. was actually released this September, um, from prison. So I'm really happy for him. Um, you know, but I mean, there's just like, as it relates to just my father not being there. I mean, it's just even on holidays or just stuff like that. You just miss out on, I mean, I don't even know like what that's like to just, you know, we, we take things for granted. I don't know what it's like to just get on the phone and call your dad. Yeah. I, I don't know. I don't know what that's like. I can't, I just, I don't, I don't know. I mean, sometimes I feel like sometimes I forget that I even have one. It's like, but then I look in the mirror sometimes and I have his whole face, you know? Um, so I can't really like, I mean, let's, let's be clear. I, the only thing I don't have of my father that my brother has are green eyes, like mine are hazel, but my brother's eyes are like him, but he's like a carbon copy of my mom. Um, you know, but it, it's, it's, it's just, it's, it's things like that. Or if I think about, you know, like not like my mom, maybe having to walk me down the aisle one day, like that's just like, or I'll tell you, you know, what tears me up is when I like see on YouTube or something, I saw it, my friend sent it to me because her father is also incarcerated in California. They had a father daughter dance at a prison. I boohoo cried for that one tore me up. I was like, Ooh, Ooh. And these little girls that I was watching, they're so strong. You know, you're, you're nine, you know, going to this prison to do a father daughter dance. You, I would be in a corner, a mess. I would, you know, like it's, it's too early for this. Right. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) You know, but you have my tissue box. Wow. Yeah. No, I mean, it's, it's just when I, I, I mean, and and more than anything, like I, I honestly, like as it relates to my father's situation, I kind of see it as like a gift and a curse, you know, like Mm -hmm. I think in many ways, I feel like my father and his behavior was problematic. I mean, when my father was incarcerated, he was still in his early thirties, you know, I mean, and at that age, I don't feel like he was really cemented in being an adult, you know, and being a father of four. But then again, I also have to offer him some compassion because like to have to bury a child when you're that young has to be something that is immensely painful for him. Um, But let's be honest. Uh, my father has, he spent, like, my father told me in a letter once that, you know, he had been in and out of trouble with the law since he was 19. So by the time my, my, my older brother passed away when he was young, um, my father was actually in jail. I found out when he missed his funeral. So I could only, like, sometimes I could only imagine the guilt you know, of that, then the guilt from being away from your other children, you know, I can only imagine sometimes the things that my father dealt with, you know, and I try to offer him my compassion in that way, such that I can maintain my own sanity, because I just don't want to be one of these bitter, you know, angry creatures that just won't go reconcile and deal with, you know, the issues at hand, you know, um, but I, I definitely think that like, you know, my, everyone knows my mom, like you can scream Rhonda Yale Lewis Clark from the rafters. They know that my mom is that machine, like who goes out, like she got so much love on her birthday. Like every, this, it was in October. Like, you know, everyone knows that like my mom's the glue, like my mom is, 
the reason why I am the machine that I am. You know, like I just, it's, I owe it all to her. You know, first of all, just, you know, bow down to your mom because I mean, the, the, I'm a single mom mm-hmm. and I, I, I know what that walk is like, but I, I got privilege. It's some things I can afford. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But the thing that I worry about is we've gotten so accustomed to this narrative of single black mothers and their strength and their strength. And we celebrate that strength, but that strength is a double-edged sword. Agreed. And I say this because they don't know how to fall down because they can't afford to fall down. So instead of falling down, they break. They don't know how to bend because they can't bend. So they break. Right. So I've been thinking a lot about how we celebrate black mothers, especially single black mothers. And we should. But I'm like, they don't need to be that strong because it's a good and a bad side to everything. And when you're that strong, people don't even know when you need love, when you need compassion, when you need caring. Because you're always the one doing for somebody else. You are the you are the dumping ground for everyone's emotions, for everyone's yes. needs. Yes. You're the receptacle for everybody's yes. everything, right? Everybody's yes. bullshit. And yes. so when you get to a point where you are breaking apart, even people who want to help you don't know how to help you because they never learned. No. And so you talk about your mom and being a machine, and I'm like, I think about it with so much honor and respect and I think, but what has she given up in that process? What tenderness has she had to give up in that process? What kind of love has she had to give up in that process? Right? And and there's so much there that we need to unpack as a society because we take, we will take from these single mothers, we will take because they give and they know how to give, right? And so... I, you know, I'm talking on two levels, from a personal place, but from a place where, you know, my mom is a single mother too. And I, I just know it's not easy. It's not easy. And we need to come to a place where we say, put your load down. We're going to carry it for you. Agreed. You've done your part, mama. Now you need to sit. Yes. You know? Yes. No, I, I completely agree. And, you know what? I think this has a lot to do with too. It's like, you know, it's also the network, right? Cause I actually, I mean, I'll be really honest. I had that conversation with a family member on my father's side where I was direct. <laughs> and I said, when my father like went down, none of you were around. None of you. And I'm like, I, I just, I, I this was an opportunity. This conversation was last June. And I said, like, explain to me how you can watch what my mother went through, because this is the person who's also always calling my mom a machine. But like when literally everything went down, you were nowhere to be found. Nowhere. And I have that to offer for a number of my family members where it's like you guys knew that, like, to a certain extent, my mom was rotting, trying to survive with two kids. <laughs> and sometimes it just felt like they were just sitting there with the popcorn. You know, because I feel like, you know, I'll, I'll be I'll be really honest. I feel like there's a part of me that 
where on the one hand, the network as it relates to my family, extended family and friends, they did not know how to help my mom. They did not know. They did not know. And then I'll I'll be really honest. I think there was another part of people who I felt like were punishing my mom and felt like, well, you married this man, you know, like you might be getting what you deserve. Yeah. Deal with it. Exactly. I mean, and those people, I'm going to keep my mouth closed on that one. Um, But I'm just kind of like, you know, when you, and and the other thing is too, with like, as it just relates to my mom and her experience, I, there's no like book she could have gone out and figured out how to like, there's no book for any single mom as it relates to their experience. Everyone as a, like all of these women have different experiences as it relates to their single motherhood, right? There really is no book on how like you're learning. And my mom had to tell me that one time because there was just some things that I just wasn't understanding. And she's like, Ryan or Rye, as she calls me, I'm learning as I go along. I didn't know. There's I, no manual. There's nothing. There's no and I'm manual. like, oh, well, that, that, I mean, because I think about it too, because my mom was my age when she had me, you know, so she's going through all these motions you know, in her early thirties, you know, I mean, and that's, that's, that's quite the load, you know, yeah, and if you, your early thirties, you know, the time when we all thought your early thirties needed to look like Carrie Bradshaw. Tell me about it. Okay. Right. Right. <laughs> right. With your fancy clothes and your Mr. Big. <laughs> <laughs> Come on now. Parties. <laughs> um, I'm just saying. Because I, I've watched every episode of Sex in the City, and I'm like, uh, that's not, I own that's, it. Not, that's not, my Mr. Big, there was no Mr. Big. Okay, Mr. Big was the best too, but <laughs> story for another day. But, um, you know, there's so, much, there's so much truth and power in that. In this, we talk about the bystander effect. It's not just in racial discourse, right? As we've been talking about. It's in family discourse and it's in family dynamics. Like, when do you step in? A lot of people will tell you, well, she didn't ask. And I know it's hard for a lot of people to ask because you don't even, first of all, you have to understand what situation and what setup you're in yes. to know what to ask for. Like whoever wrote the book about what to do when you're a single mother whose husband is in prison for life, like I'd like to see that book. And so it's just, it's to hear, to hear you talk about your experience, right? First of all, it's just so powerful. And I want to go back to something that you said, because I think we need to bring it in. You said you and your brother were supposed to be statistics. Unpack that for me and then help me understand how you are where you are today, Mm -hmm. working for one of the biggest most influential companies in the world, looking bright and fabulous, <laughs> being all feisty and positive. Talk to me about that because there's nothing on your face, in your demeanor that reveals where you've come from. And that's a really, really good point. And, and thank you for saying that. Um, and that's actually part of the reason why um, I partnered with Microsoft in March to do um uh, the video I did, I participated in an interview that was recorded, um, to create a promo video for Microsoft criminal justice reform initiative. And what you just said is exactly why I wanted to do the video, because for those people at Microsoft who just walk those hallways and they see me, 
you know, because I support a VP and two other partner level attorneys who see me running on that third floor of that building like a chicken with my head cut off every day. You have no idea that that little girl is the daughter of a death row inmate. So for me, doing that video was kind of like surprise, you know, for because like, I think a lot of times people think that they're so far removed from people like me. No, 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 pumpkin. We exist. You know, and for me, that's another. And I mentioned it in the video where I said, like, me doing this video is to let kids like myself know that you have opportunities to work at this company. Like, I'm never going to let my father's decisions determine what my life looks like. That's that's just not that's just not going to happen. Now, going back to the other part of your question as it relates to us being statistics, I'm, I just feel like it's something that's in the air. I mean, because if you're see, like, if you think about it, if you read like a lot of stuff, whether it's in the newspaper, you see it on the media, a lot of the rhetoric around just incarcerated men and women, especially yeah. incarcerated black men, is just negative. It's just it, it's not like it's not uplifting. It's not hopeful. It's not aspirational. It's not inspirational. Mm-hmm. Like it's none of those things. It's very negative. So it's like, if my father is a statistic, then by default, so are yep. his kids. I mean, think about it. Like that's one of the reasons why this is something that I thought about. I'm actually kind of working on it at Microsoft, but not really um, a little bit, but it's still in its beginning stages. And it's not actually something that I thought about doing later in life, like, like post my babies being in grammar school, where it's like, there are so many kids out there that are like me and we literally have no resources. Um, and mm-hmm. we're just like, I mean, there's, there's like, they have programs set up for these kind of kids or programs set up for these kind of kids. But if you think about millions of black men and women incarcerated, if they each have two kids, that's how many more people are affected wow. by mass incarceration. Like I think about kids like me. I hadn't thought about it that way. I, I mean, not thought about it that way. You, I, I mean, and see, I have to, because like everyone knows one thing about Ryan Victoria is she is a USDA prime rib grade A baby lover. I love kids more than life itself. I have seven godchildren. I have three nephews and I have no money because of all these kids. <laughs> I have none. So, you know, I mean, I'm always thinking about kids. I always want more for any kid than I ever have wanted for myself. Like I'm, I'm very involved in all of my godchildren's lives. Some of them are my relatives. Some of them are not, but it doesn't even matter. Or even if they're yeah. not my godchildren, I'm still very invested. Um, but I just think like when I'm thinking about statistics, just in general, like it's hard for me based on all that I've grown up seeing or even certain comments and stuff that I've heard even from family members from friends from media or whatever I mean those comments are negative so it's it's kind of hard to separate myself it's like okay well if my like I mean think about it if those there's a set of expectations even for those inmates that are released they have a set of expectations my uncle who just got released he has they're thinking he's going to end up going back and he is busting his ass to make sure that he, that he doesn't No, I mean, I spent like 200 bucks on him recently and I got him close to interviewing. I got him some nice socks. I got him some, um, you know, I got him some just really nice stuff to just kind of get him acclimated. Cause I want him to go out here and do well, but he's dealing with guilt. He feels terrible because he's missed out on all his nieces and nephews lives. I'm like, I told my uncle, I was like, listen, you're fine. Like we're going to meet you where you're at right now. 
And then we're going to go from there. And he also needs to learn to rely on the network that wants to help him. So I can spend 200 bucks and get all these clothes for him. And it's not a big deal, you yeah. know, because I want him to do, I want him to do well because I don't want him to do to what some of these statistics, mm-hmm. what some of these people who, you know, sit in front of their computers all day and swear they can determine everything about my life without even, even having ever had like a conversation with me or just seeing my track record. You know, it just, it, it doesn't make sense. There's a bit of an arrogance in that, right? In the statistics, you constantly feel like you're trying to beat the odds. Marianne, yeah. we're, we're coming up to the close here. And I just want to ask you, have you been able to see yourself as separate from your history, from your father, his history, his story? And if you have, what, what version of Ryan shows up? Mm. That's a good question. Because um, sometimes we're so we're so trapped in our history, right? And we we carry it everywhere we go. So I'm just wondering if you if you if you've gotten to a place where you can see yourself beyond that, and, and what and what that version of you looks like. I, I would definitely say I have. Um, you know, I think because I'm I'm in my 30s, I would say that I'm significantly more intentional with how I use my emotional currency. Mm. Like I will not compromise my sanity, my well-being, or anything like that. Like the yeah. way I did when I was younger. It, negative. I have boundaries now. Like things are things are very, very different. Um, you know, and I've never been someone who's like just taken on my father's situation um as something that's ever determined me. Like I'll probably get in trouble for saying this, but my sister, when she had my oldest nephew, was kind of paranoid. She was like, Ryan, I'm about to have a baby. Like, what am I doing? She was like, you oh. did not grow up with stability. And I was like, she's like, but our father. I'm like, no. Oh. I was like, I have the text messages still from like five years ago, six years ago. I told her, I was like, no. I said, you know what? Our father's situation, yeah, it wasn't the best but it helped make us who we are. And we've grown outside of that. So because of our experience, you're going to be able to enrich your son in ways that maybe other parents could not, you know, we're just, you're just going to be parenting from a slightly different aspect. We're just slightly, our, our humanness is just a little bit different, you know, because of our father. I mean, my sister's, my sister's a monster. My sister is, my sister has a PhD, you know, my sister's a, a professor at a university, like my sister is the one, like she kind of yeah. set the blueprint because she's one of the older ones. She kind of set yeah. the blueprint for all of us to level up, you know, I'm like my big sister is, she, she's with it. She's um, on point. Yeah. Immensely, you know, but I, I would definitely say like, I would not have been able to do all that I have done or just even be the person that I am, you know, if I spent time in that bag, that is my father's situation. You know, I just, I think staying intentional and I think just being grateful for what I do have. Like I tell people all the time, I may not have everything, but I have enough, you know, and that's just kind of like the way that I, that I I choose because it's definitely a choice. That's the way that I choose to carry myself because like, if I do want to be the best daughter and the best, you know, 
auntie because I am but like the best godmother and I mean actually you just own that you own uh, it's, it's, you cute you own your emptiness you can't like it, it's like it's not like I, I've already wrapped my Christmas gifts um but I would say that like I can't I can't be invested in that way or even be invested you know like how I want to be as a mom one day if I'm if I'm carrying that you know, it, it's just not, I mean, what, like, I would argue that, you know, for many kids like me and myself included, like mental health is key. And like I said, this is a resource conversation and we're not being given those resources. Like had I had someone to talk to, but like while you're in the midst of the madness, because you start telling yourself things, yes. you know, you start telling your things about yourself. Oh, my father's not around. So therefore I am worthless. Oh, I wasn't more important than a life of crime. So therefore I suck. Like you go through all mm. of these emotions. You know, so I've had to spend time in my therapy bed. You know, I, I will argue that my current therapist, I'm her favorite. She won't admit it, but I know I am. Um, <laughs> she cannot stand it. Um, but, um, but I mean, that like be, the ability to sustain um, in those ways so that I can show up, you know, for myself and, and, and others. But I would also argue that one of the more important lessons that I've had to learn while I've been on this journey is definitely about um, me being able to prioritize myself and the things that I need and not feel guilty for it. Because if I don't prioritize, because at one point it was just like, it was everyone else's priorities than mine. And, and that, that got to be all a bit too consuming. So it's like, now that I have that ability to prioritize myself and I know, I know those that are meant to be in my life will be okay with that because they know I will be my best self if I go in here and have dinner or whatever it is that I need, you know, in that moment, if I need to go get my nails in so that I don't scream, then let me go do that. Um, you know, so, I mean, I, I think those are kind of the things that have let me see beyond, you know, my father and the, the, the prison walls. And I think just that me forgiving him in 2009 and him no longer having that, you know, kind of hover over me, I think is what has just been able, you know, for me to blossom and do and make me kind of the unicorn that I am at Microsoft and get promoted twice in a calendar year. So <laughs> there, two snaps for that. My, my, my camera is over here freezing. So my clock is a big delay, but y'all can hear it. You can hear yeah. the clock. <laughs> Um, so we're going to go in about a minute. So really quickly, mm-hmm. what do you want to say to your dad? Mm. What do you want to say to mama? Mm. And what do you want to say to all the little girls and boys out there who Oof. are going through what you're going through? That's a good question. Ooh, that one, that's heavy. Oh, I'm sorry. But I mean, it's it's a really good thing. And I, I feel like in that post that I wrote on um, on Father's Day, it might have been two years ago, I feel like I said everything I had to say where I, I, I told my father, I, I forgive you for not being there when I needed you the most. You know, I forgive you for not being there for when I need you in the future. I forgive you for not being there when I needed you right now. You know, I'm, I'm, I I forgive you for not being there when I had heart surgery, you know, like, um, I swear, you know, um, I forgive him for all those things. I don't harbor anything against him because legitimately, if it was not for him, I wouldn't be the auntie of the three most beautiful boys you've ever seen in your life. You know, like I wouldn't, I wouldn't have those experiences, 
you know, and that's something that's, that's really, really important to me. I would argue like for my mom, I just, I can't even put into words how I would want to say thank you. I can't even like explain it, like how much I want to thank her for everything. I mean, she did more than what she had to do. Um, she just, she's the most incredible human I've ever met. You know, I just don't, I, I can't, I can't even put into words. Um, you know, and that's why like, you know, I, I do as much for her as I, I possibly can. Cause I just, I mm-hmm. even think like I could spend the rest of my life trying to repay my mom. And I still don't think it would, for me, at least it still wouldn't like cut the mustard as far as like being able to repay her for what she's done. Cause my childhood by no means was it easy. You know, she definitely did the best that she could, but I would even argue that now my mom has like showing up for me now in, in even more imaginable ways, you know, and Mm -hmm. I'm grateful for that too. Um, and as it relates to just young kids who are experiencing what I'm experiencing, I would just say like the, the one of the most important things I would want them to know is that I don't care what anyone says to you. You will always be more than whatever crimes your parents may or may not have committed. Yeah. You will always be more than than their incarceration. You know, um, you are more than just the child of an incarcerated yeah. person. Like, yeah. let's start there at baseline. Um, the other thing that I would offer them is, you know, I don't think the world would throw us anything that we couldn't handle. And I think mm. that, I think that this kind of situation kind of makes us special and it kind of gives us a trajectory to do life a little bit differently. Different, yeah. You know, and there's nothing wrong with it being different. We all are not the same. You know, I'm I'm the only person, or at least like me and my siblings, I'm the only person that I've ever met um, with a parent that's on death's row. All my other friends, either their parents had shorter sentences or they had um, maybe extended length of time, but none of them were like on death row like my own father. But um, I would definitely say that you know, rely on your network as much as you can. I wish I did that more too when I was younger because it was just like, I was trying to do everything myself, everything. If there is someone there that's offering help or don't be afraid to ask. I mean, I had a network and I just chose not to use it. And now and I'm older, it's like, okay, I'm going to be an adult today. I need help period. You know, I cannot, as much as people I'm known for juggling, like everyone knows, like when shit hits the fan, I'll get a call (laughs) because everyone knows I can get things done on the phone in less than 15 minutes. The same way I operate at work is the same way I operate personally. Like I just, like I run myself, um, you know, but I definitely say like, you know, and also uh, the last thing I would say too, is definitely if you can, you know, if there's someone that you can talk to, because like to hold all of this in, it's too much. It, it's just too much. If there is a safe place and there is a safe person that you can go out here and ha- navigate some of these conversations with, um, I I would definitely do that. I because I just I I think without having these conversations, 
at some point you're going to burst. And I think that like, there's people out there who can offer like different um, perspectives. And actually I would offer one more thing for parents of these kids. Yes. May not know. My mom had no idea that I was rotting because I was so high functioning. She had no idea. Mm. These parents, you need to look at your kids with a hawk eye. They could be equally as high performing as I was and still be rotting inside every day. Doing what I did, going to bed with tears every night because they just could not understand like what the hell was going on in this world. Don't make any assumptions as it relates to your babies. Please, please, please go out there and have these conversations or put your kids in situations that they can go have conversations with someone else. They will thank you for it later. I swear. Yeah. Ryan, thank you so much. You, you've just given us your heart, your soul on all of this. And as you were talking about, as we're talking to the children and saying you're more than just your parents' crimes, let's just for about 10 or 15 seconds throw out a few adjectives that they can hang on to, okay? So I'm just going to throw out, you're beautiful. You're worthy. You are funny. Hmm. That's another one. Um, oh, I'm drawing a blank. Um, you're smart. Yes. No, you're definitely smart. Um, I would also say, oh my God, my word bank is just, I don't know what is going on here. Um, I'll keep, I'll keep throwing it. You can interrupt. I yeah. You're capable. Mm-hmm. You you have a unique something that's just yours to share yeah. with the world. Right? I would say that you're also more than enough. Yes. Um, you know, I would also say that you deserve everything and all things that is positive. I would mm-hmm. also say that the world is operating, even though sometimes it doesn't feel like it. And I know this mm-hmm. from personal experience. You think that this world is not operating for your greater good, and it most definitely is. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say when you feel like you're not walking, look down on your feet. Because you might be moving just a little bit. It's just not noticeable. I, just, just yes. pushing. It, yeah, it's the pushing push. thing for sure. And I would also say, like, if you can... And this is something that I would argue comes with age because I know I didn't have it as much in my youth. An attitude of gratitude goes such a long way while you're on this journey. Mm-hmm. My goodness. <laughs> um, I, w- I would say, say thanks for the things you have and ask for the things you want. You yes. have permission. You have permission to want more, to want different, to want better. Nobody has to give that to you. You have the right to want more, to ask for more, to beg for more, to take more. Yes. Right? As long as it's not criminal. Yes. But that is so important because I think sometimes a lot of us are waiting for permission to be good. Yes, yes, yes. worthy. So you have permission, do you? Yes. No, completely agree. 
Thank you so much. I'm yeah. so glad we had this time. Yes. You have made me cry in the morning. I'm glad <laughs> Sorry. I wake up. I'm glad I'm looking toe up. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm happy. No, thank you for, for, um, for having me today. And it's definitely been uh, quite the release for me. Because every once in a while, I need one of these to just, oosh, you know, kind of. Yes you know, like just, you know, get me out of Microsoft land and just tap into something else for a few minutes. This has and been the, amazing. And the world needs to hear it. And the world absolutely needs to hear it. Thank you. All right. Thank you so much, Ryan.